You're listening to Learning Now Radio, bringing you the best news, views, and interviews from the team that brings you Learning Now TV. This is Learning Now Radio. Hello, I'm Colin Steed, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Learning Now Radio. Learning Now Radio is Learning Now TV's bi-monthly podcast for all learning and performance professionals. This is Learning Now Radio with Colin Steed and Lisa Minogue-White. Today's episode features educational futurist Myra Travin. Myra believes that the learner and the technology they use are in a collaborative relationship where each creates possibilities for the other. She says that tech without humans is sterile and humans without tech are less productive. Lisa recently caught up with Myra and they had a fascinating discussion and we're delighted to bring it to you here on Learning Now Radio. So on this episode of Learning Now Radio, I'm delighted to introduce you to Myra Travin. Now, Myra is an educational futurist. She's a learning experience designer. She's an author. She's a speaker. But above all of that, she is passionate about transforming the learning experience and creating a truly personalized learning experience for us all. So Myra, welcome to Learning Now Radio. Thank you, Lisa. It's, It's wonderful to be here. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time because you're speaking to me from the other side of the Atlantic uh, at the moment. And I know that you're often very busy with the, with the amount of engagements that you have and speaking mm-hmm. engagements. And I say you're a very prolific writer. And it's not really any surprise because I think you're looking at an area that is of particular demand, but actually is quite a challenging area for people. And this is about making the concept of personalized learning real, helping organizations understand what they need to be delivering for people, what the opportunities with data um, are presenting to both individuals and organizations. And I suppose where I'd really like to start is, what's the demand out there from organizations? What are they expecting of the learning profession or discipline? And what are you being asked to get involved in? Well, that's an interesting question because it is in a tremendous state of flux, given the fact that there is increasing amount of data every day. Uh, You know, Sintef talked about 90% of the world's information created in the last two years. So really think about just the information piece of it and what it is that organizations and corporations are trying to do to keep up with that. It's remarkable. And then if you add on top of that, the really critical factors of learner choice and access, which have never been as prolific as they are today. So we, we carry around in our pockets and purses, our own personal computers, our, you know, our tablets, our phablets, our phones. And we have so much control over how we uh, get resources and how we use them and when that this is creating quite a challenge for talent management, HR, and learning organizations across, really across the globe. And what does that challenge look like in a practical sense? Is it a lack of 
appropriate skills within organizations that, like you say, from a talent perspective, that there mm-hmm. is a new form of learning and development team that's needed? Because there's lots of talk on that, but I think making it real in terms of, okay, well, what will the learning professional look like? There's still a lot of debate there. What's your view, Myra, really, in terms of what organizations need to make sense of this? Well, I think that there has to be a, a, a bitter pill that is swallowed almost immediately. <laughs> and that bitter pill is that instructional design is really turning into learning uh, design, learning experience design. And once we understand that as learning professionals and as HR organizations, uh-huh. then we say, okay, we are fundamentally changing the skill sets that people need to have to be able to develop and deliver learning programs and what I call learning experiences, learning ecologies. And, you know, that is hard to do. It is hard to turn on a dime to do that. Um, If we have had the kinds of skills as talent managers that we've always depended on instructional design, it is bizarre to us to give up the control of things like developing courses for example, I mean, that's that's the pre- most practical example I can give you. What if we didn't develop courses, but we developed environments? Imagine how different that is in the minds of learning specialists who are trying to create these environments and these um, programs for people to learn inside their organizations. It is not a evolutionary process any longer. It is a revolutionary one. It's, it's funny you should say that, Myra, actually, because yeah. I was talking to Brent Schlenker and Anthony Altieri today. Um, they were running a, a session this morning talking about data security, actually. And I, mm-hmm. I jumped in on the conversation. I gatecrashed that conversation, <laughs> mainly because um, here in the UK, and it was something that I wasn't aware of until very recently, we have a university local to where my company's headquartered. And um, they're working in collaboration with the business school at Warwick University, which is a a pretty well-renowned business school in the UK. And they've developed um, a tool called the Hub of All Things. And really the concept there, and it's got a real resonance really with XAPI, is that there's so much data being created about us by different organizations and about the organization itself from a learning perspective, that actually that is my data. And you were saying about, you know, creating the right environment. We're also creating personalized experience and data that both the organization and individuals can benefit from. And in fact, organizations may soon be in a position where the data that we're creating about the way that people are learning via protocols mm-hmm. like XAPI, actually that's, mm-hmm. that's mine. That's my experience that I may want to access and be able to benefit from in my career or transfer, uh, as well as the organization benefiting from it. And you start to realize that actually, as a, like you said, as a discipline, as a, as a, a function of the organization, this is no longer creating courses. This is not what this is about. There are some bigger questions at play here. Oh, there are such big questions at play here. I mean, I love Magnus Lindquist's uh, idea of infobesity. Um, that, to me, is such a wonderful trend that he talks about. And the idea of that coupled with globalization and digitalization, you really start to see that we are no longer, if I might say, in Kansas anymore. We are involved and must be aware of and know how to deal with 
things such as artificial intelligence, as you suggest, XAPI, social learning, informal learning, and creating these kind of learning environments where, oddly, we have very little control over them. And personalization, by definition, is a way for a learner to say, this is what I want when I want it. So please provide me an environment where I can do that and resources that I can curate to do that. And I think what's interesting here, and Marino, I'll put my hand up straight away as I did to Brent and Anthony today to say, despite what Harvard Business School say about data scientists being the sexiest job of the 21st century, I'd love to be that sexy. <laughs> I am not that sexy. I am not a data scientist. And I think that's the, the challenge is that it does seem like well, quite an intimidating you know, world. No one's going to go with this, Lisa. <laughs> I know exactly where you're going to go you with know, this. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. I am, I am about to do a boot camp on um, instructional design to LX. And that's what I spoke about at South by Southwest EDU and one of the reasons I wrote the book about guerrilla learning that I did. Because what I'm saying is we, do, we no longer have the luxury of working in these environments where we have total control and we have our own kind of time frames. It's, it's being taken away from us in every moment, and especially with artificial intelligence. And as someone who has created algorithms for learning and predictive learning, I can tell you that these artificial intelligence environments, especially as they relate to learning, are being created, and it was just written about this in the New York Times. Um, the title of the, the article was Artificial Intelligence's White Guy Problem. Uh, you start to see that these algorithms are starting to be created where uh, they have biases against certain types of groups of people, and certainly their um, gender is one of those, those pieces. Now, why is that important? It is important because in the article that I wrote on the annihilation of independence, I talked about this idea that we are no longer individually in our own heads learning from a tool that is outside us. We are now in relationship with that tool. In other words, we are sharing a persona. And every time I say that, to me, it, it just blows my, I blow my own mind by saying that because these AI systems, if they are created by data scientists and they're black boxes, if you might say, because they're proprietary, you can see that much of this will be done around these around us these tools will be created for us but they may not represent us and that is even though it will give you the sense of personalization personalization will not be what happens because your voice and your perspective will not be within its programming i mean you know AI will reflect the values of its creators. That's what Kate Crawford said in that article, and I think she is correct. Um, Myra, I know that before we started talking, you very kindly gave me some soothing words about the current political situation <laughs> in the country that I reside in at the moment. Yes. And I was motivated to write a piece directly afterwards, reflecting on my experience in knowledge management and encouraging organizations, you know, a good old decade ago now to adopt communities and that the, 
the voice of your people will exist whether you want to hear it or not. And by restricting that and restricting that kind of, as it were, like you said, we are all content creators today. What you do is you create, you know, if you leave a space for silence, it will get filled. But what you fill it with may not be what you want to hear. And in, interestingly, in the situation in the UK at the moment, no matter what your political affiliation, what was interesting is that there was quite a lot of complacency about everything will be fine. And the, that void and that space was filled with information. It was filled with data, much of it erroneous, but data nevertheless. We cannot make intelligent decisions unless we know the full picture. And you're absolutely right. If we create those types of algorithms in a vacuum, then we will, by definition, create a certain outcome. We need to be a part of the, the relationship. The human being needs to be in relationship with the algorithm, with a sentient form of, of an artificial intelligence algorithm. I mean, it sounds bizarre to say, but... If it has a sense of sentience, and I can give a great example of that, a woman asking Siri, um, uh, she had a child in danger, and she asked Siri what to do, and Siri told her how to save her child, which she did. And, you know, you start to realize the implications for that, and certainly in the movie Her and in other areas um, of popular culture, you're seeing this kind of um, characterization come out. We... We can't just wait for these things to happen and then assume that there's going to be a tool, sort of like we did with online learning. We said, oh, great, we're going to move everything from our instructor-led training to online training, and that's going to solve our problem. We assumed there would be a tool or a turnkey answer. And of course, we found out that, boy, that isn't true. Uh, it creates its own set of you know issues. And now, if you move into predictive data, predictive content, artificial intelligence, you start to see the poor instructional designer or talent manager or, you know, um, someone in the C-suite who is responsible for education saying, what the heck is it I'm supposed to buy and do and provide? And that is why I say the bitter pill that has to be swallowed is this idea that you, you must have control over everything. There's just too much data. You can't control it unless you don't want to offer any form of social learning or informal learning that will uh, be you know, used in, in uh, standards such as XAPI and, and then be able to really give us that, that, the benefit of predictive and adaptive learning. If we're going to do that, we can't just buy a tool. We can't just say, well, the data scientists know, knows knows this and I'm not one. So that boot camp that I'm talking about and what I'm, why I'm suggesting it is we need to understand as learning professionals what data scientists do. And I spent a good deal of my career in the last five years talking to data scientists, working with them, creating algorithms, understanding what it is that they know how they know it and how they can benefit from, you know, my perspective as a uh, instructional designer. 
And it really resonates actually with the conversation that I had with the professor that's leading this research project that I was referring to, the, the hub of all things, where it is, mm-hmm. is putting data sort of back in control of the, of the person that created it. Um, and what was interesting is his observation. I was saying, you know, I'd really like to find out more about this. I would like to get more involved, just as you've described. I am not a data scientist, but it is beholden upon me to understand this world better. But interestingly, he said exactly the same thing back to me. He said, but we can't work in a vacuum either. This is what he's saying about, you know, if you've got different factions working in the dark, that's not going to work. We understand the tools. We understand data. We understand statistics. We understand the research methods that you need to apply rigorously to be able to come to conclusions about outcomes. And and obviously, algorithms are are, are really helping to advance that. He said, but in the end, these are applied in the real world, where, like I said, as is proven over the last week or so, the outcomes can be unexpected and context is important. And we need to understand it from a practical sense, what organizations are struggling with so that this doesn't feel intimidating, that it, it, it is accessible and people can make practical steps to start to benefit from it. They absolutely can. And I think one of the first steps that you can make on either side of the equation, whether you are a data scientist or an IT person or whether you are a learning designer who does not have those skill sets, is to say we must work together. Um, I was involved in a a learning futurist task force at the Gates Foundation with uh, Darren Nearland. And Darren and I sat together and some other people saying, what is the future of corporate education going to look like? What, because we're all trying to figure out this, the same thing. So I worked personally on a roadmap and a learning and technology development model. And I brought that back to the team because I said, look, we have to learn from each other's competencies. We can't have a design model that's just for UX or a, or a learning model that's just for ID. What if we put these things together? And that model was, uh, was published in Tony Bates's book, Learning in a Digital Age. And why I was excited about it is that, oh my God, we are finally having a conversation. And it's, to me, it's like the cattlemen and the ranchers must be friends. We must work together. And the more we work together, the more we understand what each group brings to the table, uh, the, the more effective our learning environments will be. And I think where these threads start to pull together is there's been a lot of conversation around the transformation of the learning profession or professional Mm -hmm. as business consultant, Mm -hmm. as performance consultant, understanding what the outcomes we are looking for and working back from there. And I know that's something that you're really passionate about as well. It needs to be outcome-based systems. And I think that's a very tangible and perhaps in some ways, less intimidating place to start, starting to understand what outcomes you're looking for rather than thinking, wow, you know, are all our systems XAPI compliant? What tool should I be purchasing next? Um, you know, it's starting with the business outcome in mind is, is a better place to be. And I'd love to get more on your thoughts on that. Sure. I've just presented at the uh, International Coaching Foundation PRISM Awards uh, last week on this very model that I have developed called the tech shift model, which is for me, having worked in the organizations that I've worked in, what I was looking to do was um, using, uh, for me, I, I very much like Brinkerhoff's model. So I created a performance-based model, really designing from the end in mind. I went backwards. 
Right? What are the business outcomes we need to have? And then everything else was designed backwards from that. Um, kind of opposite from what you might see in, you know, in most traditional instructional design models. But what I'm suggesting for people to do is to think about thinking about what is the course I'm going to create? What is the program I'm going to create? And, and start to say, what are the outcomes we need? And how can we create an environment that allows people to personalize their learning, both from access and choice standpoint, and then at the end of the day, keep that data going uh, via something like a standard like XAPI, constantly doing evaluation of how healthy is this ecosystem? Because ecosystems in learning have a growth model. And if they are not growing and if they are not reaching those outcomes that we as an organization want them to, we need to continually evaluate them. So if people are interested in trying to develop their confidence and their understanding of data and the trajectory that our relationship, like you say, with data, with machines, with organizations, and then from a, like you say, from a social learning perspective, what this all means and how we deliver the right types of environments to our people so they have the right skills and knowledge. Where can people start understanding this world if they don't come from a data background? Are there any resources or places that you would say, you know, that's your first stop, you really need to get there? Well, I can tell you that this is an unusual perspective. And because I am in a field that is not uh, traditionally overrepresented with my gender, <laughs> I, can, I can say that what I did first was I said, I am going to talk to people who have the opposite skill sets from me. I am going to seek them out in my organizations. I'm going to sit down with them and I'm going to say, I know that you are the head of IT and I know that you are helping to buy tools for my organization. How can we work together to create an environment that is not only um, you know, works from a technology standpoint, but it also works from a learning standpoint. So that is one of the first things I did. Now, I, I would also recommend that you take a look at what I'm writing about this transition from ID uh, to LX. Hopefully, I'm going to be doing something else again at South by Southwest. I'm doing something at Online Learning 16, where I'm developing a XAPI-enabled Slack group for the entire conference. And then I'm going to be looking at the outcomes and the predictability of that. So I'm like, I really want to put that idea together of Slack and XAPI and say, what is it like to have a learning environment that's personalized and then have outcomes on the other end? So I, I'm hedging because I recommend that you start talking to the people that are closest to you, right? rather than going to a specific resource on data analysis, because there's, you know, there's tons of resources out there. But I really think if we're, if I have the target group of this correct, that the best thing to do is to walk across, you know, walk across the office and really sit down and start talking to your IT manager and say, what do you see happening with these predictive tools? What do you think we'll be buying? What kind of systems do we already have? What are we implementing? And what do you think will happen based on the priorities of the organization? Because they do know. 
And that really would be my best suggestion is just to start talking to the people around you that have those competencies. Um, Myra, I think that's wonderful advice because I think all around, like you said, if you're going to look for an outcome-based model, you've got to start talking to those people around you. And learning, again, we keep using the word in a vacuum, learning is not in a vacuum. There will be other areas in the organization that are also grappling with this and understanding the implications. It has implications for talent management. It has implications for leadership. It has implications for procurement, for IT, even through to then the services that we're providing in the products and services that we provide to our customers it's touching everybody this isn't just something that's affecting affecting learning and as you said the best approach here is a cross-disciplinary approach to this and that's the danger of hr departments becoming obsolete i guess is the best way that i can put it or there's a risk of that if they really don't understand that when people create tools that are predictive and, and based on artificial intelligence and um, they are implemented within, you know, large systems, our GRP, ERP systems, they may find themselves the last person at the table being asked about how people learn and why that's important. Because it is a lot easier to buy something or create something that has a deadline than to talk about some of the individual personal and ethical issues around learning. That is, when people are buying learning solutions, you will find that you get left out of those conversations if you don't really um, start doing some of this research on your own. Well, and I think hopefully what people will take away from this, just as the, the motivation for starting this podcast in the first place, is that the more conversations that we can have on this and the more threads we can start to pull together, the better chance we're going to have to create things that, as you say, are inclusive, that represent us all, not just from a disciplinary perspective, you know, the different disciplines in an organization, but as you say, as humans as well, that we capture the whole experience and are able to create things that um, are personalized and meaningful for everybody. Right, because we care about learners. That's why we're doing what we do. And our perspectives certainly can't be lost in the development cycle. And Yes, it's easy to get intimidated um, by analysts who are incredibly talented, but that's why I'm saying start with people that you know and people that you possibly like. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's not as far a jump because then you will start to understand and get, get pieces of this and realize that we really do and we must be in this conversation of the place where technology and humanity meet together. We must have our voices heard because we have important things to say. Well, Myra, I think that's a wonderful place to end the the podcast today. I think getting out there, getting those conversations, if it means you have to buy somebody a slice of cake just to, you know, warm up the conversation, then that's no bad thing. But Myra, thank you so much for your perspective today. I'd really encourage anybody to go and have a look at Myra's writing. There's lots of stuff out there. And Myra, your understanding, I think, of the learning environment, of learner motivation, but the trajectory of technology is something that's really refreshing. And I'm hoping that people will have really feel invigorated by this conversation. So, Myra, thank you so much for joining us today on Learning Now Radio. Thank you, Lisa. It's been my pleasure. Learning Now Radio. All the best news, reviews and interviews. 
Well, that's all we have for this episode. I hope you found some useful takeaways to jot down and use back at work. And please remember to share Learning Now Radio with your work colleagues, your Twitter followers, and of course, your Facebook friends. So once again, thank you so much for listening to Learning Now Radio. Please help us to spread the word by subscribing and rating us on iTunes. And Lisa and I look forward to you joining us in two weeks' time.